Welcome to Conversations About Care, a podcast for pediatric clinical providers. Hi, this is Sandy Hassink, and I'm the medical director for the Institute for Healthy Childhood Weight at the American Academy of Pediatrics. I recently sat down with my colleague, Dr. Stephen Cook, Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the Golisano Children's Hospital to discuss weight bias and stigma in children and adolescents. Dr. Cook offers some clear steps for pediatricians to engage families on this topic of weight and obesity. Stay tuned to hear our conversation. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Sandra Hassink. I'm the medical director of the AAP Institute for Healthy Childhood Weight. And today I'm here with Dr. Steve Cook, Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the Galizano Children's Hospital in Rochester, New York. And Steve has a longstanding interest and practice in obesity medicine. And today we're here to talk about weight stigma and bias. So welcome, Steve. Thank you, Sandy, I appreciate it. So Steve, I'm, I'm always interested in, uh, I know weight bias and stigma, addressing weight bias and stigma has been a passion of yours. And I'm always interested in how did, how did that come about? How did you get particularly focused on weight bias and stigma? Well, you know, it, I think it was a, a number of things. I mean, working in the field such as yourself, getting to meet so many people in pediatrics who are very interested and passionate about this and trying to, you know, help families, um, both on a larger community policy side with things like daycare, school policy strategies, things like that, but then also clinical, because at some point, obesity is a disease that needs a clinical intervention, and we've seen so much of that really expand, and we've seen the evidence base expand. I think it was probably after the Affordable Care Act, they identified that evidence-based interventions that were endorsed from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force with a grade B or higher should be covered without copay. And most of the things under preventive service are like screening or, you know, much more simple type of tools, but childhood obesity, BMI screening and treatment was identified and evidence base was expanded and looked at and shown to be effective. And from meeting with so many other colleagues in pediatrics, you know, through the mid 2010s, 14 through 18, I'm thinking a number of us were either trying to set up weight management services or expand them or just keep them running. And as part of a survey with the Children's Hospital Association, we looked at this and it was, you know, concerning because we had a really good response rate and a fair number of places had something, but the support and the finance for it really wasn't great. So we had this condition that was getting all kinds of attention on a media standpoint, a policy standpoint, but the clinical piece of it wasn't there. And as I looked at it and working with others, this was really like a systemic bias. It's a weight bias against a condition. And that too often I would talk to primary care doctors who were frustrated, who said, I can't help this family. They don't want to get it. They, they don't want to make change. And it's not as simple as that. So just like we've advocated for kids in so many settings, this is a condition. And I'm not saying every child with a high BMI really is in the same boat, but you know, for children with obesity, severe obesity, for which a clinical intervention is needed, you know, we need to advocate for this at the Medicaid level, at the payer level, as well as looking at how it impacts the social life and emotional life of a child. So Steve, you bring up so many good points because I think one of the more striking things about this disease of obesity, this medical condition, is the pervasiveness of weight bias and stigma 
down to actually within families, within schools, communities, in the health system, bias about uh, providing resources for, for treatment. And so I think one of the striking things when I went, as this was all evolving, was to look at the implicit bias within our own healthcare providers. And I remember looking at an implicit bias test that a bunch of providers took and just realizing that we were reflecting the cultural bias around obesity and began to think how important it was for us to first recognize that we adopted our own cultural view to be aware of that and to understand what that meant and to address it with ourselves in both our clinical practice and in our advocacy for for children with obesity and their families. So I think one of the things that I've been most interested in, at least as I've taught about this, was help, helping people find resources at, such as the Rudd Center to look at their own implicit bias and begin there and just realize how pervasive this is and then understand that and the implications for it in, in all the places and spaces they're in. So I wanted to just ask you, as you deal with children, we'll just start right at the clinical level and you're, you're meeting them maybe for the first time. How do you approach a family just to try to understand, are they, are they and how are they being impacted by weight bias and stigma? How do you start that conversation? Well, you know, Sandy, you brought up a great point about the implicit bias test and we actually had our a research team that's running our intervention for one of our studies, these are behavioral coaches, had them go through the test. And I wasn't surprised, like all of us, we have some component bias and a number of them were surprised that they had it. And a couple actually were trained in special ed and they were really surprised because they work with children with autism and other disabilities and felt they were really kind of in tune to, you know, understanding children and sensitive nature of children. And that's another reason I pointed out to them and others, like, you know, we've done so much around teasing and bullying and you know identifying that and, and not teasing and bullying and picking on children because of their race their gender their sexual orientation their disability but body shape and weight it's still free game and it really has been and so it's one of those things that's just been there for such a long time so i've, I've tried to really keep that in mind and talk to residents and families about it and so i try to use a couple things people first language so if i do have to say obesity or say your child with obesity your child mm -hmm. has obesity, not your obese child. And I also ask them, is it okay if we talk about their weight? And just starting a conversation with that, when I have a parent for a visit, that's what we get into. And it's really important because there's a lot of disconnect there where a child may be well above the 95th percentile. And as a scientist, we think of, all right, this is like severe obesity. And the parent's like, yeah, he's a little overweight. And I have to hold back and not correct him. Like, well, no, mom, this is really kind of well above the obesity range. So it's checking yourself and trying to make sure that you can understand because at the end of the day it does it, it's really important to understand what are the other important things in their lives and obesity is such the condition that parents will when you bring it up you want to discuss it if you don't start out right they take this as an immediate assault to their parenting skills like you failed this child because you know they're 30 pounds overweight at age nine and it's that's not the case i just try to ask what's going on and, and start the conversation. Because if we can build a little bit of confidence and reassurance, even if it's something that small they can do that we know ain't gonna move the calorie needle or the weight needle, but they can accomplish it, it's building that rapport. So I think it's really important to start out, you know, kind of slow and gentle in that sense to, to, to bring it into families. And I try to make the point of, you know, this is, you know, in some cases this is a disease 
and it's not one phenotype. It's not just one disease. There's so many ways that this kind of evolves that, you know, we can't just chalk this up to, you know, weakened uh, personal choice. So I think that I, I, so many things you said are so important. One is asking if you can talk about uh, weight. I've had families come in and say, we don't even use that word in our family. And I say, what word can we use? What right. word can we use to talk about this? If we can talk about it, what word would you like to, to use to talk about it? You know, I, I'm, I, you made me think of a case I had years ago when a mom had three sons and they were all, they all had obesity. And we were in the midst of our visit. And I don't know why I said this. I just happened to say to mom, you know, I'll never judge you. And she burst into tears and she mm -hmm. cried and she said, you're the first person who's ever said that they wouldn't judge me. I have felt judged about this yeah. the whole lives of my children. So not that I, I think that that's the language we need to use, but I think we need to recognize how judged parents often feel. And they walk into our clinic with some trepidation right. about being, being judged. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it reminds me of, a, of a, a case of a mom and a dad I saw, and mom herself had severe obesity. Dad was really kind of thin, and dad had stepped out, and this was like a three or four-year-old girl who was who had a severe degree of obesity. And I, I said, can we talk about weight? Can we talk? And, and she's like, okay. I said, you know, just tell me kind of if this is okay to talk about. And she started getting upset. I said, but let's slow down. What's going on? And it jumped to ACEs. So this mom was in foster care and she remembers them locking cabinets so she couldn't get food. She remembers being yelled at from family members about eating and trying to sneak food. And now both what she went through as a stress obviously impacted her, her weight and was also driving how she was not going to do that to her child. So, you know, it, it is such a complicated issue that we have to kind of really peel back the layers of the onion and, and understand where we're starting from. Yeah, Steve, I think that's so important to recognize the multi-generational impact of weight bias and stigma itself, like so many other systemic biases. Many of our parents have, have obesity and have experienced weight bias and stigma many times from their own childhood and are trying to either protect their kid from this or feel very judged about this. So I think we approach this, I think, with a lot of humility in, in having this conversation with our families. What about the team, Steve? You know, we all work in, in teams. We have our whole office staff and all the people we interact with. Do you have anything you can share with us about how we talk to our teams about this? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is extremely important. And, and having been fortunate to work with, you know, getting trained by faculty who did practice-based research and being shown how to do that and walk through meeting with practices, you know, this is maybe one issue that when we go into offices, it is kind of an interesting and awkward discussion at times, uh, whether it's my practice at the hospital where I work in our primary care setting or other primary care settings, staff will come up to you after and say, you know, I always want to ask you a question about this, you know, they never come up and ask you about that when you're doing a, you know, a vaccine study or something. But it is really important for both reasons because, you know, obesity is a common condition and so a number of staff will have it or they'll be concerned their child has it. As well as how they just kind of casually make comments. I remember seeing a toddler coming down the hall, obviously looked very large for his, his weight and his age and, and the nurse was like, oh, look at that big boy there. 
And it's like, geez, you know, out loud at the nurse's station, pe people walking around like, yeah, it's a cute kid. He's coming down the hall. Did you need that? Did you need to make that statement? And how mm -hmm. that may or may not be perceived. And regardless of that person's weight status too. And so it's also, you know, it is a complex issue. And as you said, you know, looking at the work out of Yale and that group where they've, they've identified where weight bias comes in, it's, it's all levels. It's dietitians, it's doctors, it's staff, it's surgeons. I can remember a few interesting comments made on my surgery rotations uh, with the attendings, but, you know, it, it's everywhere. But I think one of the key pieces of the, you know, what we brought up when we wrote this policy statement years ago was that it's not just in the clinical side. It's, it, it affects education at the earliest level, how teachers perceive, you know, children in elementary school, how people applying for graduate school and colleges are affected by the weight bias and perceptions. So, Steve, you mentioned the policy statement, and I know you were instrumental in, in writing the AAP's policy statement on weight bias and stigma. Uh, do you have any thoughts about what might be new since the publication of that policy or where we might want to continue to and maybe turn our focus? Yeah, so it's it's definitely, a, the timing is unique, Sandy. I mean, because the policy statement is five years old now, so we actually have to review. We had a review call last week with Stephen Pott, with Wendy and Rebecca Poole and the team at the AAP. So we've looked at it and it's a balance because there were certain things that we thought would be important to talk about in the statement, but then, then you have the pandemic layered on top of it. And what have we seen? We've seen obesity is such a big risk factor for severe COVID disease in adults, as well as in kids. Seeing data where one of the more common chronic conditions identified in kids is obesity you know, so how that plays into this. We don't know that we have enough given the, you know, related to the pandemic specifically to go into the policy statement for a revision, but we think it's going to be really key as we roll it out and trying to think of, okay, when this goes out, if we get this renewal of it out within the next year, it's going to point out those talking points of saying, okay, this is still something that's very significant. I mean, I can tell you, again, anecdotally from some families, how kids who didn't like going to school, were teased and bullied for a variety of reasons, didn't mind doing remote school, some of which I asked families, and yes, being teased about their weight was one of them, you know, but there were others too. So, you know, that's one side of it. The other side is we're seeing just increasing rates of obesity because of the pandemic, the stress, the response that happens with that, you know, so many things complicating it. So it's definitely a time where I think revising the statement on how we identify and address it with personal behaviors and habits and, and role modeling and language but then also uh, we have to think of it from a bigger system standpoint. And thinking of the bigger system, Steve, you know, early on we talked about the whole system's response to obesity in kind of a biased way, unlike other diseases. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've seen and maybe yep. some things we could think about doing about that kind of bias? Yeah, ab absolutely. So one of the big reasons, you know, because you were such a help to me when I did this, I actually took a sabbatical leave about seven years ago, I think it was, at the request of my chair to look at the idea of how we could create a clinical service for obesity for our pediatrics department. I worked with you and got connected to the AAP, the Children's Hospital Association, where we did a large survey of children's hospitals across the country asking about this and actually worked with New York State Department of Health as they were looking at, you know, could obesity be part of some Medicaid changes they were going to look at making, where that would fit. And this is also a time when it's supposed to be covered under the Affordable Care Act. A number of us were thinking the opportunity was going to arise. And I did a business plan with some graduate students at our university of, you know, how you put together a one-year, three-year, five-year prospectus and looking at what population size we would see and how many visits and, and, and everything, which was 
you know, hard and different, but really important. And then just seeing the thought of, okay, well, you know, as we finish this up, New York was going through a Medicaid redesign plan and looking at maybe revamping entirely how it was going to be paying for healthcare through Medicaid and was told by a high-level finance person, well, if Medicaid drops free for service, we can't start a new clinical service like this if it's not started. You know, so it got decided by a dollar and cents statement right up front. And I was disappointed because it was like, all right, I understand, you know, the university or the the center doesn't want to make a step going forward with it for that reason right now. But it's the, you know, what, but what's going to happen and seeing how this has played out and played out in other places. I'm I'm seeing colleagues who run very good programs who are being told to close it down because it's Mm -hmm. losing money. And I'm in general pediatrics, you know, we're 75, 80% of our kids are in Medicaid managed care. Please show me what divisions or departments are making big money besides the NICU. So, Mm -hmm. You know, to me, it's this isn't a matter of this is going to break the bank. This is the right thing to do. Now, Mm -hmm. are we treating all kids with a BMI of 95th above 95th percentile? No, but we need to offer something. And it is really concerning because then it feels like it becomes the battle or issue of my disease is more important than your disease. Mm -hmm. And that's that should not be the case. I mean, obviously, we have endocrinologists and subspecialists who take care of kids with cystic fibrosis and type 1 diabetes and things like that. But if I look at severe obesity, based on our data in our region, 3% of kids are in a severe obesity range. That's more than some of those subspecialties. And, you know, and we don't have any formal type of evaluation or service or treatment available. We have small things, you know, if someone gets a grant to work with the YMCA or after school program, but nothing that's meant to be a really kind of comprehensive treatment. And so I've been fortunate that my research also started to, the interventional research really started to take off at the time that this clinical care model was put together because we talked with, and you were there at the academy, we talked with some insurance companies. And it was interesting how private insurance thought of it one way and Medicaid thought of it another way. And then large employers thought of it very differently because they saw it as a family-based treatment, which was actually kind of encouraging because they saw the value of it to their employees. So it, it's been a challenge, but that's one of the things that I think is is why we really need to look at addressing this, not just on kids being teased and bullied, obviously that's important, but not allowing, you know, some type of treatment intervention that is available, that there's an evidence base for, and it's being stopped, you know, on multiple fronts that, that feel systemic. You know, such good points. And I think that this is really obesity is really a call to advocacy for all pediatricians on all these different levels, wherever we interact with patients and families and hospital systems and and insurers and and employers. And uh, I think understanding our own maybe implicit bias, our own desire to see equity uh, in treatment for all the children uh, with obesity and clinical programs, I think can fuel some of our advocacy efforts here. And the other thing I've been so struck with is obesity, I often think is like the canary in the coal mine. It's a reflection of some of the societal, socio-ecological issues like uh, food, access to health and healthy, fresh food, access to physical activity, stress, now even COVID that's, that's really pervasive and really fueling this epidemic. And Weight bias and stigma and parents feeling of blame, their own sort of maybe some guilt or some blame really combines to make it even harder for families to work against these socioecological forces that are operating because when you feel guilty or you feel that maybe it's your fault, it's hard to have energy to do the hard work 
that the, that uh, obesity treatment takes. So I think it's all interconnected. It's this fabric of interconnected forces at work here. And really, in, in many ways, a call to pediatricians to to uh, really be aware of the avenues in which we can all do advocacy wherever we are for, for these children. So, Steve, we're, we're coming to, to the close of our conversation. Any last thoughts you'd like to share with our colleagues out there? You know, I think it's really important that, uh, like we do all the times, we become the voice for children. But really looking at, you know, how care is having to evolve, we need to be the voice for the family. And I think we've always gotten that as, as the, you know, as the foundation of patient-centered medical homes, so we understand it. And so looking at, like, for example, the intervention I'm involved with is a family-based intervention with parent and child. And we see the parents having weight loss as part of this intervention and the child weight corresponding with it. Now, this is not an intervention for everyone, but it is an intervention. And it's also one that we see it in a sense of two for one. And so advocating for the training that's needed, you know, to get hospitals, to get health systems, to create, you know, to put the investment in to set up obesity treatment services, clinical services, because we do the advocacy really well. And we do the advocacy very close to it, whether it's promoting physical activity, after school programs, nutrition, food insecurity. I mean, addressing those issues are all going to help. So we're kind of doing that a lot in PEDS, but we really need to advocate on the system side to say, okay, let's put some dollars into this. I mean, how many other conditions have we started to address related to children, you know, since that time, you know, in the past eight or nine years that are important as well, but we've not addressed this. And it's obviously more common, it seems like, and, and just as distressing. So I think, you know, pushing on the clinical side, on the, on the institution side to support this, as well as advocating like we do with the payers. Yeah, and I would just add that I think the COVID pandemic has unmapped both the deficiencies in our ability to take care of these kids and fueled increasing obesity rates. So we have, we have a perfect storm, but also an opportunity here to really highlight what's been happening and the vulnerability that really obesity confers on children for not only COVID, but other chronic disease. So Steve, we've been talking a lot about weight bias, and I, I just wondered if we could spend a few minutes talking and thinking about the effects of weight bias physically, mentally, and emotionally on, on the child. Uh, can you talk about that for a minute or two? Sure, you know, it, it's, it's a very complicated issue. And I think as you and I know and others, that obesity really sh shouldn't be tagged as one phenotype. It's not one disease. And so whether a child gets there because of mom smoking during pregnancy, and that led to extra fat accumulation and a child having higher amount of weight or being on a medication that drives up appetite because of mental health problems, or because of a stressful chaotic home environment and going between having food available and not having food available and the body going through those physiologic shifts and stress response, leading to increased cravings and in eating, increased fat storage and accumulation. I mean, all these are part of those different phenotypes and not that we're gonna categorize someone saying, you know, you have a food reward type of obesity. I mean, we may evolve into something like that, but I think we have to look at the many factors that can lead to it. It's easy to point to, and we think we can point to like a genetic type or syndromic type of obesity, but we know those are really, really rare but it's far more common to see how the stress and the stress responses and the coping mechanisms that emerge 
play into excess weight gain. And then the fact that that's a biologic set point that is then the body fights to defend that, to hold the weight at that, at that point. And so you have more biologic process, uh, you know, food satiety cues, hunger cues that start driving to keep weight in that range. And so it's not as simple as, well, if they just, you know, put down the cookies and, you know, stop playing video games, it would be that simple. It's, it's not that simple. And what's always striking to me is weight bias and stigma itself is a stressful occurrence for a child. So being teased about your weight as a child by either your peers or your parents, or you see it reflected in social media causes a significant amount of stress. We know that depression and anxiety are associated with the weight bias and teasing. And we know that the physiologic stress response that you talked about just a minute ago gets triggered by weight bias and stigma and teasing itself. So in some ways, the kids are in this loop of being teased and a stressor and more stressors and weight and more teasing and more stressors. And we, we find that they, they get into this loop. So weight bias and stigma is not just, like somebody said, it's not just words. It has an actual physiologic effect, emotional effect on, on the child. So I think we have to bear that in mind because just like any other factor that affects physical, mental, and emotional health, weight bias and stigma is one of those factors. And so we need to uh, address it in ourselves, our implicit bias, and address it in the system and address it in how we approach our patients. So all, all important uh, considerations. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciated the time you took uh, today to be with us and uh, all your comments. So thank you very much. Thank you, Sandy. And I think like we should, we should learn from a pandemic, never let a good crisis go to waste. And so maybe this is a time where we can, you know, embrace and make some of those changes. Telemedicine may be a great one that we've, I think we've discovered that hopefully will help us along the path here. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to my conversation today with Dr. Cook about weight bias and stigma. Also, be sure to check out some of these relevant resources, including the AAP policy statement on weight bias and stigma, conversations about care bonus episode, interim guidance on obesity and COVID-19, conversations about care episode four, weight for Lent, and the Change Talk app on motivational interviewing. Thank you all for listening. The views, information, resources, or opinions expressed during the Conversations About Care podcast series are solely those of the individuals and do not necessarily represent those of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The topics included in these podcasts do not indicate an exclusive course of treatment or serve as a standard of medical care. Variations, taking into account individual circumstances, may be appropriate. The primary purpose of this podcast is to explore common themes related to quality pediatric care from the perspective of clinicians. This podcast series does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted toward the content of this podcast without the expressed approval and knowledge of the American Academy of Pediatrics podcast developers is forbidden. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast.